The road to the upcoming emission regulations just reached the halfway point, and the EPA issued what it calls a technical assessment report on achieving those standards. On today's show, three experts tell us just how on target we are. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Can the automotive industry meet the CAFE standard, the fuel economy standard of 2025 of 54.5 miles per gallon? We're going to find out on today's show. We kick off with Mike McCarthy from the California Air Resources Board. Then we move to Mitch Bainwall from the Automotive Alliance, the lobbying group for the automotive industry, and conclude with Chris Grundler from the US EPA to see where the standard may go in the future. Mike, the big buzz in the auto industry right now, of course, is the EPA's technical assessment report. I'm sure you had a lot of input into that. There's two sides that seem to be developing. Uh, on the auto industry side, saying, ay, 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 this is a real tough standard to me. On the other side, the, regula- the, the regulators and, and the environmental community is saying, hey, you guys can't back off at all. So uh, explain for those in the auto industry why you think that this is something that's very doable when they don't see it that way. Well, we never said it's an easy job, right? And, and uh, you know, we have a history, especially in California, of setting technology, forcing standards, and moving technology. Uh, but we think we've done a very thorough analysis. EPA has had an army of, of people on working on this. Uh, EPA and NHTSA uh, and, and ourselves also contributed to this report, right? It's a joint report by all three ages. But we have built up a fairly substantial record of what's feasible, how much it's going to cost, and uh, and the technology side that makes me very comfortable and very confident the auto industry can respond to this and can do it. One of the complaints from the auto industry is that they're really facing three different standards, very similar but yet different. Uh, NHTSA has the the CAFE, cafe, the fuel efficiency part. Uh, EPA has uh, uh, different pollutions, especially regarding GHGs, and then California's got yet its own standard. I think the industry was looking for some sort of synergy or convergence instead of having to go and meet three right. different masters. Why is there not progress on that? So just uh, to clarify, on California, we do have a separate, our own greenhouse gas regulation, and then EPA has their theirs. Our, our standard, while it's on the books, allows manufacturers to comply with the EPA standard in lieu of our standard. So our standard is off the table in a sense, and that it, they only comply. So there is no harmonization or discrepancy between California and EPA because there is only one regulation to meet. It's the EPA regulation. There is a, the CAFE from NHTSA and the EPA, and, and it's true they're not completely harmonized. They are very, very close, much closer than the, you know, they, they've been in the past. Um, NHTSA does have some statutory restrictions that, allow, that prevent them from completely harmonizing. You know, a simple example, in the greenhouse gas, it's, it's a fleet average. You can trade credits between cars and trucks. NHTSA has some statutory rules about limits on trading between cars and trucks. But it's, it is, there are some minor issues. They can trip up a manufacturer every once in a while, but they are very close to harmonized. And at least in the California and EPA sense, we are perfectly harmonized on GHG because there is one, we have opted into the one national program that is the requirement in the EPA rule. One of the other uh, complaints from the automotive industry is when these rules were first promulgated a few years back, gasoline prices were at four bucks a gallon. Everyone was sure it was going to five, maybe even six. They thought that everyone was going to buy small cars, hybrids, plug-ins, pre-electrics. 
here we are four or five years later, gasoline prices are the cheapest they've been in decades and the market is completely flipped. And they're saying, hey, you're, you're telling us what we got to do, but the public right. just isn't right. going along with the program. That, that's, that's true. Uh, the only thing is, you know, we did plan for flexibility in the regulation, right? We made a, a footprint-based standard. It's separate for cars and trucks. And the bigger the vehicle you buy, the more energy it takes to move the vehicle, the higher the CO2 standard you're allowed to emit at. So to a, to a large extent, our regulations already encompass whatever mix of products manufacturers want to meet. We like to uh, characterize that the standards are equally stringent. Whether you make a small car or a big SUV, the, the relative distance to the target is about the same. And so we think, you know, in the end, we won't get 54.5 mpg as the number that was thrown around before. It, it's more like 50 now. But that's uh, without that a bit, because I, a lot of people, myself included, thought that 54.5 miles per gallon w was right. almost a mandate. Now right. you're saying it's more of a guidance? or So we have standards for cars, we have standards for trucks, and back then we projected what the fleet mix would look like in 2025 based on cars and trucks. Back in that time, the projection was about a one-third one truck, two-thirds cars. So based on that and the size of cars, the, that hypothetical fleet of 2025 would have been emitting at something like 54.5. Um, there's some more caveats with that too, but that was really the basis of it. This time around, the fleet right now is about a 50-50 mix almost in cars and trucks. So the projections going forward are more like a 50-50 mix of cars and trucks, which the trucks have a slightly less, uh, more relaxed standard. So that moves the number down from 54.5 to 50. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's going to move down even further than that because uh, there are air conditioning credits and other off-cycle credits that count in lieu of the fuel economy. There are some credits, but some of them are being taken away too, right? The flex fuel one is going away, and flex of fuels, course, flex for, fuel. for trucks and all that, that's something that they've relied on heavily. They have, and they've been transitioning out of that. And I think you can see in the uh, at the uh, compliance levels they've been doing, they've already been transitioning out of the flex fuel vehicles, yet still beating the standard with some cushion and banking some credits on. Uh, the industry as a whole has been banking some credits for future years. Okay, California has its ZEV mandate, its zero yep. emission vehicle mandate. Uh, boy. Uh, plug-ins and uh, pure battery electrics have not sold in the numbers that they're going to have to do. And th this is another thing. H how do you get the marketplace, i.e. consumers, to buy those cars and trucks in the right numbers to meet the standard? So in California, we actually, they're beating the standard right now. We have a flat standard through 2017 model but, year. But this has been the easy part, right? After yep, 2017 is when it really starts right. to ramp up. That's right. Uh, so we've been running around 3% of, of new car sales in California with fuel cell vehicles, battery electrics, and plug-in hybrids. Uh, it does ramp up in 2018 and beyond. Uh, we're doing some analysis on it right now, but manufacturers have also been over-complying to build up some credits to help smooth out that transition. Um, so we think actually there's a lot of things converging right now, right? We've got Chevy talking about a 200-mile, $35,000 car. We've got Tesla talking about an affordable 200-plus-mile car. We have Ford and Nissan who have said, me too, that they're going to bring something. To the, the battery technology has come down faster than we projected. Um, there are a lot of things converging right now that are making this attractive. In California, Governor Brown has made sure every part of California is committed to this. We have utilities working on more and more infrastructure. We've just had charging infrastructure. Three of the utilities now entered the, entered the market and expanding and putting out significant amounts of infrastructure and charging. We have co other complementary policies from access to hybrid, to, I mean access to HOV lanes. Very popular in Southern California, Northern California area. That sells a lot uh, of electrics, let me tell you. <laughs> I does. don't have to tell you. It does. Uh, we have rebates 
to help consumers on top of the federal rebate. Uh, a lot of places have free parking in downtown parking structures where they're paying a monthly fee. They can get free parking with these advanced vehicles. So we have worked uh, with the utilities with time of use charging and nighttime charging rates to make the electricity more affordable. So we have luckily with the support of Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Brown had every agency committed to the goal of transitioning California to zero emission vehicles. And, and what's the mandate for it? 10% by when? It, it, it's, a, it's a credit structure, so it's complicated. It's a 22% credit by 2025. It's, our original projections was something about 15% of new car sales in 2025. New projections are gonna be lower than that um, because we, had, we hadn't projected 200 mile BEVs in a $35,000 price range being affordable starting this year. Mm -hmm. That is a great success in advancing the technology faster than we wanted. That's a perfect example of what the regulation was hoping to achieve and helping commercialize these products and bring the prices down sooner. Well, we'll see if that happens. Uh, that would mean a five-fold increase in sales from where they are today. Yes, it's still a big lift. It's still a big uphill battle. Very good. Mike McCarthy, thanks so much for sharing our, your insight into the, the EPA TAR report and your own ZEV mandate. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mitch Bain, while you're the CEO of the Automobile Alliance, let the audience know what that alliance is all about. Sure. So the alliance is a Washington, D.C.-based uh, advocacy group. Uh, we represent 12 OEMs, the, uh, the Detroit Three, uh, six of the major Europeans, and three of the Japanese, including Toyota. So you're essentially the lobbying group for most of the automotive industry in Washington. Both in Washington and in the States, yes. Gotcha. So... Let's get into this technical assessment report from the EPA. Sure. Uh, on the regulatory and the environmental side, sure. everyone says, hey, this looks terrific. You guys, the automakers, are running ahead of schedule when it comes to meeting this uh, fuel economy standard and emissions one as well. We'll get into the, some of the variation sure. on that. Sure. What's the alliance's take on the, the EPA report? So, so uh, the fact is, to date, we're in pretty good shape. You know, I'm not sure we'd say touchdown, but, but we're doing well, and that's good news for, for us, it's good news for consumers. Uh, we've been going through the CAFE program now for a while, and uh, we've seen probably roughly a 25% increase in fuel economy. So if a consumer walks into a showroom today, they turn in the 11-year-old car for a new one, they're getting about 25% more fuel economy. So that's, that's success. And the question is, moving forward, having had the success, how do we get to the end? And that's going to be tricky. The EPA, of course, agreed yeah. to doing this, what they call the midterm review, sure. just to make sure that everybody was on board with where we're headed. As you look forward in that 2022 to 2025 uh, timeframe, what's the industry's input on what should be done with the standards? Well, first, the midterm is relatively early. We're talking about going to 2025. We're crystal balling way out into the future. It's 2017 now. This has been going since 2012, basically. So when you say 2017, you're talking model year, the 2017 model correct, year cars correct. are already out. So there. we're already we're projecting way out, which is a tough thing to do under the best of circumstances. They have so many different variables. You know, what's the rate of technology introduction? What's the rate of adoption? What's the cost of adoption? What's the fuel price? We have to remember, cafe is about what consumers buy. It's a mandate not on production, but a mandate on, on consumption. And so the consumers are the, the 90 pound gorilla here, or whatever their phrase is. Consumers are what it's all about. So you, we gotta get that right. And what we see right now is that consumers are not buying the cars necessary to comply over the long term. They're very happy with the fuel economy gains they've already achieved. 
And when they buy a car, they're looking for safety, they're looking for reliability, they're looking for low maintenance costs, they're looking for functionality, utility. Fuel economy is a piece of the equation, and they're going in, they're seeing massive improvement of fuel economy going, that's awesome, now let me get enough power to tow my boat, or let me get enough room for all my kids to go to lacrosse practice. They have other, other factors. The regulators look at the world through one metric. They're worried about fuel economy, period. Consumers look at the world through a much broader set of factors. And that's the challenge long term, because they're not buying the vehicles necessary to make this work over the, the period. But, you know, what the regulators will argue is that, hey, look, it's all footprint-based. You don't have to blend all, average it out, like you did under the old CAFE rules. And so, you know, they're saying it doesn't matter. Uh, we plan for green vehicles, hybrids, and electrics right. to only be 3% of the mix. Right. right. So it would seem that they're, they're pretty much on target right now from that standpoint. So there, there are two different issues. One is the footprint, and two is the percentage of hybrids and electric necessary to make the program work in the long term. So the footprint does accommodate some consumer choice. So if you want to buy a truck, you want to buy a car, all that's okay, and the end uh, MPG varies based on the fleet mix. So they got that part right, but they've ignored basically the factor within segments. So if you're buying a passenger car, do you choose the four-cylinder, do you choose the six-cylinder? That part of the gas price impact they've not at all considered, and that's a really big deal. So you know, in order to comply, you have to not just get the fleet mix right, you've got to be able to sell product within segments that make the whole set of numbers work, and that's not happening. Now we have a debate with EPA and CARB about what kind of penetration of electrics and hybrids are necessary. They say very little. We believe it could be 30% or more, and that means much higher costs, and the higher costs then gets you to the question of affordability. Affordability is key. If we can't sell the vehicles, the impact on our economy, the impact on, on safety, on, on even climate, very, very important that we can move product. The most important thing we can do is protect what I call the virtuous cycle. When somebody turns in an 11-year-old car and they buy a new one, they're getting a car that's far safer, it's far cleaner, uh, it's more productive because you have fewer accidents because of the safety technology, so much better from a congestion standpoint. You want to protect the virtuous cycle. If we jack up the price of cars with regulatory requirements that are expensive, then we reduce the virtuous cycle. That doesn't work for anybody. And then there's an impact on jobs in the Midwest especially. There is an, a jobs impact to be sure, but also cars keep improving all the time. Sure. Electric cars probably are not selling very well right now because there's very limited driving range with them. Unless you want to spend $100,000 and Tesla will happily sell you one that gets right. more. But Tesla is coming out with a car in a couple of years that will get a 200 mile range. General Motors is going to have one by the end of this year that gets 200 miles. Don't you think that might change the equation in terms of how many people are interested in buying these cars? So the Bolt is an extraordinary vehicle and I look forward to seeing how that rolls out. And obviously the Bolt is getting a market way before the Tesla. We'll see when the Tesla actually comes. Great product, but we'll see when it comes. So the, the challenge with electrification is that people are concerned, one, about range, but they're also in a low gas price environment. They're not really sure they need electric vehicles. And so electric works for many as a second or third car, but if they want to take the uh, family on a trip to Orlando or to go to Austin, Texas, or wherever you want to go, you need range, and so that, that's a bit of a problem. We did a survey not too long ago where we asked people how much they would pay for the convenience of electric and not having to pay for gas, and 7% of the people 
7% say they spend more than $5,000. 70% would spend $2,000 or less. So the math isn't really there. The product is extraordinary, great product. And ultimately, I think that's the long-term destiny. But the challenge is in, this, in a low gas price environment, it's really hard to make the numbers work. So what is the, the want? What is the ask from the alliance to the regulators? What do you want to see changed in the CAFE and the CO2 legislation? You know, we got three standards here, yeah. really. We, we want honest rationality. So this is a long ball game. The TAR is the beginning of the midterm review. And that doesn't culminate until... But do you want to lower the targets instead of the 54 well, and a half? Do you want well, to lengthen the time to get there? What, it, what do you guys want from the, it, the regulators? It's premature to say what the final ask is going to be, but we want a real, honest analysis of the challenge and not to sugarcoat the reality because we do see long-term challenges. You know, when you run a marathon, the first 10 but miles are But you are going to ask for something, right? Because what I'm getting sure. from what you're saying is sure. you're not happy with the standard as it well, stands. We want to let the facts dictate the outcome and the facts we suspect will suggest that we need some flexibility. The flexibility for some may be getting to numbers that are higher than the current targets, but over a longer period of time. Okay, maybe it's flexibilities to help comply with the targets. But let me be clear about one point. The debate here is not yes or no. It's not a binary question. The debate is how fast, how far, and can we make it work where we protect the balance of all the interests here. We want to make sure we can protect the safety advances, protect the environment, protect jobs, protect productivity. You know, we have a fragile economy right now. Regulatory friction is not what we need. So that we want to be rational, make sure we look at the fact pattern over the period of time, not try to jam something and make sure it works to protect the broader uh, economic and interests of the industry and of the country. We're getting down to the end. I need a quick answer, yeah, sure. but what's your sense of how the regulators are working with the industry? So open door, we have lots of communication uh, and, and all that is great. The nature of regulation though is a regulator looks at the world through the prism, a unidimensional prism. They are looking at the world through a question of carbon. We look at the world through a, a, a multifaceted prism carbon, safety, affordability, utility, performance. And so we have, we have a different way of approaching these questions. Our fundamental objective is the same. We want, we want cleaner cars. We want to protect the planet. All that's, all that's good. But we also want to make sure people can buy new cars. Because at the end of the day, that virtuous cycle has to be protected. Very good. Mitch Bainwell, thanks for giving us uh, you. your Enjoy side it. of what the, the Alliance sees on this technical assessment report that's just come out of the EPA. Thank you, John. Chris, the EPA just came out with its technical assessment report, what everyone refers to as the TAR. You're getting all kinds of input from industry, from the environmental lobby, from others who have got a vested interest in this. Mm -hmm. But you're really talking about this being the first step, the regulations that we have right now. And you're thinking a whole new way of approaching things after 2025. What are you yeah. thinking? I think this is uh, what we're facing is too important and the focus needs to be amongst both public policy thought leaders and industry thought leaders has to be more than just four model years. That's what the TAR is about. Are the 22 to 25 standards uh, still appropriate? But much has changed. Everything is changing, as you know, John, in this business uh, since, since 2012, not the least of which is nearly every country on the planet has agreed to reduce their emissions. And if we're going to achieve what science is telling us to achieve, which is roughly an 80% reduction in emissions by mid-century, we can't afford to continue to be just 
thinking about incremental improvements. We have to be looking for game-changing um, situations. And like I said, this, the industry is in the midst of transforming itself with new players coming into the business with capital, um, with, with the big demographic changes that are underway, with, with new um, mobility businesses cropping up, uh, and with, with the advent of new fuels and low-carbon fuels. So I think we in government need to be willing to open our minds and, and transform public policy as well. And, and what I try to convince the audience here is, is that we need to begin a conversation about what's next. What does the post-2025 period look like, given all these imperatives, not the least of which is to avoid the worst impact of climate change. So what does that mean? That means designing a policy framework that tries to realign these incentives that encourages and not inhibits these changes, actually accelerates these transformative changes and, and looks at how do we integrate uh, fuels into this policy? How do we integrate some of these new firms? What about all this new technology? What is the role of our public util utilities? So I think we need to have that conversation while we um, make the decision with respect to 2025. This industry is just, it's too important. We, we're not going to be able to address climate change without transportation. And because innovation has been the lifeblood of this industry, and time and again this industry has shown the, the heart, the imagination, the persistence, the spirit uh, to um, keep coming up with new ideas. I'm convinced if we can find a way to, to harness these forces that are already at work in the market, we can build a future that increases the freedom of mobility, that improves the uh, quality of life in our, in our cities, and and protects the planet, the only one we have at the same time. What are some of your thoughts of approaching this from a regulatory standpoint? Because heretofore or up to now, right today, it's sort of the Ten Commandments approach. Thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that. How do you get to the division that you're doing? Uh, and how do you get away from the, the very strict approach to, to regulation, or do we need that strict approach? Am I allowed to uh, differ with the esteemed host of this program? Okay, <laughs> go right ahead. This uh, is why we have you on the show. Yeah. No, I, I think um, we have shown um, under the Clean Air Act some very creative and in innovative ways, um, and I would say smart ways, to regulate. Um, there are you know, numerous flexibilities uh, that have been built into these standards to respect the product cycle times, uh, we have averaging programs, we have banking and trading programs, we now have firms buying and selling credits from one another, we have credits for real greenhouse gas emission reductions that aren't measured on our test but are, are, are real, um, we have credits for uh, industries to develop better and more efficient air conditioning systems and that's how they can achieve these standards. So this is not by any means a one-size-fits-all program anymore. Even uh, so, you seem to be suggesting a new approach after 2025. I am. Uh, it has been focused strictly on vehicles, and, and what I'm um, asking my team and asking you know, thought leaders around the country is uh, to open up our minds and think more broadly. And, and I believe that the solution going forward is going to be uh, more comprehensive, more integrated, uh, an, an approach that breaks down these stovepipes that develop uh, over time. Um, and that that's how we're going to get to 80% reduction in emissions. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
as you mentioned, there's so much change going on in the industry. We're talking about uh, shared mobility, Indeed. not just buying and selling cars, but buying and selling mobility. How might you yeah. incorporate that into your plan? I don't know, but uh, but I think we need to ask ourselves that that very question uh, because of these these developments seem seem very real to me. And and uh, but happily, I'm seeing a convergence with respect to um, these demographic changes, these wants and needs questions, these technology questions, these um, uh, other questions that are, and these other models that are building up. And that's why I say we need to be smart about how do we harness those forces already. So it, it could be, um, um, well, I probably shouldn't speculate since okay. this is going to go out to many, many homes uh, in the Detroit area. Uh, because oh, more than that. This is going out <laughs> around the world. I can because assure, I, I, sure. honestly, I mean, I don't have the answer. Okay. Um, I'm good at asking questions, <laughs> but I'm trying to provoke this conversation. I'm trying to provoke some creative thinking, and I, I want to show that we at EPA are willing to open up our minds and think differently uh, about the future because the, the stakes are so high. We're getting down to the end here, Chris, but uh, as you well know, uh, light vehicles, passenger cars and trucks, account for roughly 16%, 1-6% of greenhouse gases. Transportation is probably about a third, but when you look in uh, at the automotive industry and how it's getting regulated, uh, it accounts for about 16%. What about the other 84%? seems to me that the auto industry is being asked to carry a heavier load than everyone else. Uh, well, we are we are asking the uh, heavy duty industry to carry some of the load. Uh, we just decided uh, last uh, last month uh, that emissions from aircraft present a danger to public health and the environment, which triggers a mandatory regulatory requirement for aircraft. We are regulating fuels, uh, and we uh, just put in place new standards for electric power generation, called the Clean Power Plan. So uh, it is not just the automotive industry, but this problem will not be solved without the automotive industry. That's exactly right. And uh, getting back to uh, looking beyond 2025, I need a quick answer. When do you think you might start putting together some of that? Well, right now we are in the idea generation and, and in the idea collection mode. Um, and I don't know how long that, that, is, that is going to test, going to take, but I think you know, this midterm evaluation is, is the perfect process to kick off this conversation. Well, good. Chris Brenler, thanks so much. I know we could talk about this forever. There's yeah. so much to get into, but I really fun. appreciate your time on it. It's this. a great business. Well, as you heard on today's show, the EPA is open for public comments. Maybe even you want to get involved. But one thing's for sure, we're going to keep you up to date on the final outcome right here on AutoLine This Week.